But I do believe that in the 21st century, that increasingly, as the knowledge of adult development finds its way into those organizations, that these activities, executive coaching, off-sites, leadership development programs, high potential programs, mentoring programs will remain, but there'll be figures upon a, a much more powerful ground. They are all for too few people going on too far away from work and happening too infrequently. You just heard from renowned Harvard psychologist Robert Keegan. He's the guest on today's podcast, and he's going to make a passionate, eloquent case for the need for a very different type of organization in the 21st century. He's going to tell us how it's time to create what he calls a growth culture where everyone, not only the high potentials, are engaged in growing to their fullest potential. So welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. This is episode number 33. Happy, happy new year, everybody. Welcome to 2019. Whew, it feels kind of a relief to to get into this new year for me. Last year seemed tough in a few ways. So here we are. And as I just shared, we're going to be talking today with Robert Keegan. Actually, he's giving a presentation on what he calls deliberately developmental organizations. So Robert's going to tell us about how if we're serious about growing people, then we need to go beyond the typical approach that most organizations take to developing people, uh, you know, where they send them off on an offsite every three months, or they give them a bit of executive coaching here and there. And it's just, in his words, not enough. We'll talk about what are the principles of these deliberately developmental organizations? How do they bake into the day-to-day running of their company, the growth of their people. And it, it really takes no less than that. It's quite an intense approach. So Robert and his team spent time within companies to, to do exactly that, including companies like Bridgewater, founded by Ray Dalio. So Robert will talk about how they do that. What are these principles that they run by? And as I listened to Robert, I just thought, you know, this is just so obvious when you put it like this. How come we're not doing it? And I don't know the answer to that, but, you know, once he makes the case in the way that he does today, you just kind of think there's no other way. And it's really good news for coaches, and you'll find out why. So Robert Keegan, if you don't know who he is, he is a pioneering psychologist who created his own developmental theory built on the work of William Perry and and Piaget. And, um, you know, it's a beautiful, beautiful theory. We won't talk about that explicitly today, but you'll have heard about it if you heard some of our other podcasts. And otherwise, let's just dive straight in. So looking forward to what we might learn together. And I will talk with you for a while about one of my favorite subjects. And I think most of you know, I've spent most of my life kind of uh, thinking about and uh, not just admiring, but trying to actually support the ongoing processes of development after we've reached our full height. You know, I always remind people that when I entered graduate school in the 1970s, if you were a developmental psychologist, it meant that you literally studied infants and children and adolescents. And that was the end of the whole story, because that was the period of the lifespan in which we thought development occurred. Now that it's much more widely accepted that adult development is actually a phenomenon 
where are we in the process kind of as a species in terms of really taking full delivery of the implications of those ideas, I would say we're just at the very beginning. Every society organizes institutions to look after its greatest opportunities and to protect itself from its biggest risks so that every culture will have some kind of a healthcare system, probably some kind of a security system. It recognizes that it's young can grow and develop and that that will go much better if we systematically attend to it. So most uh, systems, most communities will create some kind of educational system for the young. But if I were to ask you, what is the institution you can point to in your own society that is making as its fundamental mission, looking after the ongoing support and development of people in their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and beyond, I think you'd be hard pressed to name such an institution. So that alone is an indicator that we've not yet taken, you know, full delivery of our opportunities in that respect. And that has been kind of the focus of my my team members and my attention over the last several years is kind of what would it mean to more fully bring the knowledge of adult development, neuroscience and so on into into work life, into our organizations, because they happen to be a setting in which we all spend an enormous amount of our waking hours and they have intentions and, you know, ambitions. And that creates the possibility of a, of a perfect marriage between unlocking human potential and organizational potential. How can organizations and their people be much, much greater supports to each other's thriving and developing. And for our own purposes here in this particular session, how might that work create a whole new frontier for the work that you do, that I do, the work of coaching, and you know what, as the future of work maybe takes new shape, what new opportunities and demands will that create for the kinds of skills, talents, and tastes that each of you has? So I want to show you a little picture here, if I can successfully share my screen. Okay. Can you see this picture? You're in an operating room in the 19th century. And... I think what you might be struck by is more what you don't see than what you do see. You know, you see these hardworking uh, Victorian gents here, but no white lab coats, no surgical gloves, no surgical masks. That's what a surgical room looked like in the 19th century. And why is that? Well, because they had no theory of germs, of infection, of sepsis. And as a result, although they could perform their surgeries completely correctly, from a medical anatomical point of view, they would still find about half of their patients would die. This is just a tragedy people lived with, you know, in the 19th century that there was a good chance you would die in surgery from what was called post-surgical complications without the doctors recognizing that those complications were actually being caused by them. Even as this was going on though, there were, there were scientists and physicians like Louis Pasteur, from which we get pasteurization processes, or 
Semmelweis in obstetrics, Joseph Lister, from which we get Listerine, uh, who were basically developing what ultimately became germ theory. And yet it still took about 30 years before that knowledge could be integrated into surgical practice. So it's a common thing that there are these time lags between the development of transformative knowledge and its actual integration into the and contribution to the changing of you know what gets taken as normal practice in its age. Now, I mean all of this obviously as a kind of metaphor because having spent now intense time within organizations that have found their own way to integrating much more greatly than a normal organization does the knowledge of adult development, having spent time in these deliberately developmental organizations, or DDO for short, or a term which we're using now that is seeming to catch on much better is just to call it a growth culture. Everybody can kind of get what a growth culture might be. Having spent so much time now in those organizations, which is what our most recent book and everyone culture is all about, having spent so much time in these growth cultures, when I spend time in a, quote, more normal organization, it starts to feel and look to me a little like this surgical room in the sense that people are working very hard, they're doing their absolute best, and yet because they are not integrating a whole field of knowledge that is living kind of on the sidelines, the ways in which things are operating may not be as tragic as half of them dying, but it could be as tragic as having most of your people not have the same opportunities to become more of what they were intended to be. You know, a, a caterpillar is intended to ultimately become a butterfly, grow wings and transcend gravity. Uh, and a human being is meant to keep growing and developing as well. And I want to just take a few minutes to kind of bring you into the life of these organizations uh, as we are now working, not just with organizations that have been doing this on their own, but now helping organizations who want to become more of a growth culture. It's just clear that this is going to call upon people with your kinds of talents and interests to take up a kind of coaching work in which you are as much as delivering the direct coaching, you're helping a culture become really, in a way, a kind of coaching culture so that everybody entering that workplace essentially understands that they're, they're kind of um, holding up and receiving the benefits of what constitutes something like a new social contract at work. And that new contract is one that looks at the work of unleashing both human and organizational potential, not as a competing set of goals where you have to choose between one or the other. Each one is there in the background of the other or to support the other. And that's what a growth culture is attempting to do. And how does it do it? First, it has this very big aspiration to really transform the whole process by which it occurs. When we scanned even the most progressive organizations that were nominated to us as possibly having growth cultures, 
most of them listened to our description and laughed and said, you know, it's interesting that you put it in words like this. It is kind of what you're saying, what we were trying to do. I don't think we ultimately have realized, you know, 20% of what you're talking about. And even though they were saying and they, you know, genuinely believed that their organization would only go as far as their people would take it and that they felt like they were making big investments in their people and people development. When we looked at what the ordinary organization was doing, we came to feel that there's something like a 20th century answer to how you support your people. It is a collection of apparently disparate activities like executive coaching, offsites, leadership development programs, high potential programs, mentoring programs, corporate universities. And of course, I think all these things are valuable. I spend much of my time, as you do, uh, in various of these activities. But I do believe that in the 21st century, that increasingly, as the knowledge of adult development kind of finds its way into the surgical room, so to speak, that these activities will remain, but there'll be figures upon a, a much more powerful ground. And that what makes all those different present activities part of a common family is that um, they are all for too few people going on too far away from work and happening too infrequently. They tend to be for too few people and with respect to the notion that most of them are offered to people who get called high potentials, which is a wonderful thing to be called if you are in that favored circle. But it's also a way of indirectly, you know, telling 90 to 95% of your people that they don't have much potential. It tends to go on too far away from work. And then you have the problem of transfer. Even if a powerful learning experience occurs separate from the workflow, you have to then bring it back to the existing culture, which has tremendously powerful uh, dynamics to sort of regress everything back to status quo. And it goes on too infrequently. It's too thin an application, no matter how good the program might be. Uh, you know, there is no community in the world where the elders would stand up and say proudly, we love what we're doing for our young in support of their development. We send them off to a powerful week-long learning experience every quarter, every three months, you know, we send them off to something. I mean, you would be laughed out of court if you thought that was going to be a very effective way of tending to and nurturing the development of the young. Adults are part of the same species, and our development takes continuous forms of support as well. So imagine if you could fashion a culture that would not be for too few, but for everyone. It would not go on too far away from work, but actually knit in together in the process of work itself. And it would not happen once in a while. It would happen every day, and you'd begin to have a picture of what a growth culture looks like. One of the quick ways to get into a growth culture is that it takes two features and works hard to ramp them up to a qualitatively different kind of a version of themselves. And those two features are care and candor, care and candor. You can call it support and challenge. I like to call it care and candor. You can imagine a two-by-two two box, a social scientist's favorite display, of being 
a strong or weak in each of those dimensions. And you could imagine probably an upper left-hand quadrant where you're weak in candor and weak in care. And sadly, that is the state of many of our organizations uh, which do not have a continuous, robust channel of communication to people about the way in which their, their choices and their labor matter, which is kind of the lifeblood of care. And they also tend to try to keep things kind of smooth. They avoid conflict, difficult conversations, holding people accountable, actually. And all of that is on the challenge side of things. So one of the companies we studied, Next Jump, uh, has this uh, deceptively simple little formula, which the more you spend time with it, the more layers you see that it has. And it basically says, you know, would you be interested in working in a place where we make a new bargain with each other, where you should come with the expectation that in the process of your working here, you are actually going to be helped to become a better version of yourself. You're also going to be called upon to care about and attend to the person on your left or right, helping them become a better version of themselves. And by such actions, we're going to have a better organization. Such organizations look at talent not as a fixed variable where you just try to attain and retain as much of it as you can, but as a flow type variable. So that even though you will always seek to hire the most talented people you can, even they will need to enhance their talents. And so that makes a leader shift his or her attention to how do I make of my leadership space, whether it's my team, my division, the whole organization, if I'm the CEO, how do I make that space the world's best incubator for talent? How do I help it be a place that draws people out of their current constitution and helps them become more like butterflies than caterpillars? And of course, leaders will always need coaches like you to kind of help them in that work. A third basic idea is that Everybody in a normal organization is doing a second job that nobody's paying them for. And that second job is basically covering their rear ends, looking good, making sure everybody thinks they're fabulous, managing people's favorable impression and their own stock value, so to speak, within the market economy of the organization. And you can normally recognize this very quickly. You can call it human nature, but human nature is a very tricky concept. And when you create a safe enough culture that people actually believe they will still be respected, admired, and included when they are not at their best, well, then you're either seeing Martians or a different kind of human because that's what's going on in these cultures. And most organizations are seeking to reduce their costs without recognizing that the single most crippling cost in every organization is the diversion of the time and attention of your people, your most critical asset. If people are spending some portion of their work day basically looking out after their own brand and stock value, that's time and energy that is taken away from their real job. Uh, this is the idea that just follows on the things that previously that I've said, that in these organizations, everybody acknowledges they have strengths and they have less well-developed sides of themselves and there's no shame in it. 
Uh, it's a fiction to pretend that you're only your strength set. And in the game of tennis, most people hit their forehand better than their backhand. The forehand is a much more natural stroke. And we all have the natural side and we have the side that feels awkward. That's what the backhand means. So like in one of these companies, just to give you a very simple example of this, of how everybody can do it and how it can go on Reddit work itself. It doesn't have to cost much. They, you know, they thought hard about the qualities they would seek to emulate, you know, uh, to be bigger, better versions of themselves. And they had a million, but they ultimately came down to two things. They said that it's good to be confident. It's not good to be so confident that you always think you're right and you have the best idea. That's a kind of overconfidence that borders on arrogance. Then they said it's good to be humble. It's not good to be so humble that you automatically think the other person has the better idea and you discredit yourself and lose your voice. That's a kind of over humility that borders on insecurity. And then what these what this organization says is, you know, everybody leans a little bit in one direction or the other. The CEO will tell you, I lean arrogant. I know I lean arrogant. I've always leaned arrogant. I hope I'm less arrogant now for having been in this culture. But I know that's that's kind of my forehand side. And they have a little joke in this organization when they're kind of explaining the culture to all the new hires. And they kind of say, uh, so you know yourself pretty well. And if you had to say which side you leaned, you know, which way do you lean? How many of you think you lean insecure? You know, half of them would raise their hands. And then they say, now, the other half of you with your arms crossed against your shoulder, your uh, your chest, your you're sitting there thinking, I'm not sure if I even buy this distinction. I'm not sure how robust the various traits are. Believe me, they say, you're arrogant. And everybody laughs and, uh, and recognizes it. And you can't go more than 10 minutes in that organization in my role, which was as a researcher trying to learn what life was like here, without someone identifying which way they lean. It's just a natural part of life. It's a little bit, I can remember once uh, giving a keynote address at a Myers-Briggs conference and underneath everybody's name tag were their four letters. You know, everybody's walking around with their four letters. Oh, you're an INTJ too. It's a little bit like that in this organization. Everybody knows who leans arrogant, who leans insecure. So the first time we gave a little talk to their leadership team when it came time for Q&A, a woman raised her hand. The CEO was running the meeting. He called on her. She started talking and he said, I'm so sorry, I have to interrupt you, Agnes. I just need to explain to the Harvard team what's going on here because I think they would have no idea. And then he said, Agnes, of course, leans insecure. Everybody knows she leans insecure. It's no problem. That's her, that's her backhand, you know. And we know the people who lean insecure tend to speak less in meetings and they tend to speak later in the meeting. People who lean arrogant tend to speak more in the meeting and sooner. So we tell people, you know, look, a meeting is a staple of work life. You're in one practically every day, if not more than one. You should go to a meeting with an understanding of the agenda and what you can contribute to it. But you should also look at the meeting as an opportunity for practice. If you lean arrogant, practice holding your tongue a little. If you lean insecure, get your voice in early. And that's why Agnes asked you the first question. She would never normally be the person to ask you the first question. It's not easy for her to ask you the first question. I just wanted to appreciate you, Agnes, and let the Harvard team know what's going on. And by the way, they're not just asking you to change your behavior. 
the way people grow is not just by changing their behavior, as we as coaches know. For those of you familiar with the immunity to change process, you know that we believe that the assumptions we hold is the mother of our behavior, and it's the fastest way into getting people to change their mindset. So when these organizations are at their best, they're not just asking the arrogant person to hold his tongue. They're asking him or her to tune into the internal monologue that's going on when you are holding your tongue. And I can give you an example of what that monologue might sound like. Because I lean arrogant, if, if you were in my office now, you'd see a, a coffee mug on my table that says, I'm Bob, I'm right. And this coffee mug was given to me by my loving colleagues, you know. So when I'm holding my tongue in a meeting, what I'm thinking to myself is something like, I'm not trying to dominate the meeting. I don't need to be the person who talks the most. I don't need to mansplain here. The, the only thing is that, you know, I, I love you all and I love our mission. And I'm pretty sure if I don't make my brilliant contribution right now, you're going to make a bad decision. So that's kind of my internal monologue. And I have the opportunity while I'm keeping my mouth shut to see whether, you know, the team does actually make a bad decision or not, right? So here's a quick, simple example of how everybody can practice every day right in the context of work itself. Bridgewater is another one of the companies we studied. Ray Dalio has just published his book on his principles for his organization, which is one of the growth cultures we studied. And uh, he makes a lot of mention of our of our study in there. His book just sold its millionth copy. So I think there should be increasing interest in the whole growth culture idea around the world. This is his formula that, yeah, it can be uncomfortable being outside of your comfort zone, almost by definition. Uh, so that can be a little bit painful. But with the proper supports around you to reflect on it, that's how you get to progress. The whole way we think about a good match between a person and a role is not developmental. Generally, you think if the person has the qualities to do the job pretty well, that would be a good match. In a growth culture, uh, if you have developed all the capabilities to do the job at a high level, that's great. That's occasion for congratulation and celebration. But it also is a signal that the job is not really the best job for you anymore because it doesn't have any stretch left in it and we need to find a new position for you. Obviously, as already indicated, these organizations are very feedback rich. We could go into that at greater length. Uh, I'll just show you kind of an example of all this, but it's this whole care and candor kind of idea. Candor is kind of an old fashioned English word. It shares the same root as the word candle candle and care. So just think about candor a little bit as bringing a, a warm, organic light into the organization. Uh, these are organizations where there has to be a willingness to be somewhat more vulnerable, but it's a kind of vulnerability where you feel still, still included and respected. Uh, this is not an organization where the higher up you get, the more protected and uh, you know, apart you are from it. I mean, everybody plays from the most senior person to the newest hire. And of course, the whole message is hard because uh, there's always more customers for comforting lies than unpleasant truths. But we've learned that that has to do with the basic mindset that people bring to work. If you bring a performance mindset to work, then the last thing you want to do is 
hear anything critical or make a mistake or get a bad review like in a theatrical performance. If instead you look at work as a context for practicing and getting better, then you expect to make mistakes. In fact, it's not a good practice session if you don't make mistakes. So maybe an irony in all of this is that every team and organization today wants to be higher performing. Maybe the greater route to being higher performing is not to have a performance mindset at all. So why don't we, uh, Alan, just kind of open the floor to, you know, questions, comments. There have been uh, some beautiful questions uh, posted in the, in the chat box and Daniel, if you're still out there, do you want to ask yeah. a question? Can you hear me? Perfectly. Can you hear me? Okay, thanks. Um, I, I, I'm noticing, and I'm wondering if you might be able to speak to the phenomena that I've experienced, that in one-on-one, um, -on -one, I'm um, more introverted and, and, and not arrogant, and yet in groups and in meetings when I get um, overwhelmed, I, I kind of go into an arrogance, exactly what you were saying. I'm biting my tongue and um, <laughs> uh, watching the ship uh, going to crash if I don't say anything. So uh, is that something you've uh, encountered? Different yeah, contexts I mean, for arrogance? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, but I, I think I want to drop back and not have you any of you get too sold on arrogance and insecurity as the master you know, continuum you know, for the human species. I really just meant this as just a simple example of how you can quickly get people to one version of a growing edge and then how you can actually do things right in the context of work itself that give people a chance to work on their growing edge. Uh, you know, this, the, the arrogance and security thing is just one, one tiny kind of thing. And in fact, in the organizations that we've been helping, for those of you who are familiar with the immunity to change approach, everybody goes through, you know, a much more uh, elaborate kind of, uh, you know, developing of their own psychological x-ray to figure out what the, you know, most valuable thing will be for them to work on. As you know, from uh, if you do know the approach, I think most of you do, um, you know, it all is all built on kind of identifying what are those key assumptions. But for those of you familiar with it, you'll know that there's a whole column called your hidden commitments. And when we take people through the immunity to change exercise and they get to that third column and they've filled it out, then we talk about the second job idea. You know, what is your version of the second job? The ways in which you are protecting yourself. You know, in some cases, the way I quickly described it to you is protecting people's good opinion of you. But, you know, it could be all kinds of different things. So that's kind of where the second job is. So uh, this is kind of more of an answer than, you know, what you were actually asking me. But with respect to the specific thing you were saying, yeah, I mean, you know, all that makes sense. And like you said, it's when I find myself under pressure, right? So the, what, a lot, what a lot of growth is about is realizing that, what limits us is the system that we've created for managing anxiety. And that system always has certain strengths in it, keeps us often from feeling anxious, but it also has certain kinds of costs and limitations. And the whole approach in a growth culture, which is why it fits so well with the whole immunity to change approach, is that you don't just identify your anxieties and wallow in them. 
you you get the neocortex back into the game and you explore right. what are the assumptions I'm holding that you know are contributing to the anxiety. And then once you've identified the assumptions, you're in a position where you're not you're not saying, oh, how do I try to feel less anxious, you know, and breathe deeper or something. No, you have a whole different route, which is to explore whether or not those assumptions are true, because if you can alter them, that often alters the whole situation. Great. Thank you. So thanks yeah. for your questions. So then there was another Daniel, Daniel Turner. Hello. Yeah, I had a, a few questions, but I'll, I'll try and keep it just to two short ones. Uh, one is, like, do you think that's the, that organizations like businesses, charities, schools, governments, and so on, are the, the main point of leverage? to go and create or like and encourage all this, uh, this human development? Or is there some other area as well where we could focus some attention where we could also get this to happen? And the second question is, is there a societal cost to all this growth? We lose something as we grow. If we got everybody to grow to, you know, self-transforming, would there be a, a cost to society to that? Or is that, is, like, do you ask yourself that question? I'm, I'm curious. Let me try to quickly address them both. Um, the first question is, you know, could we do this in other, other settings besides organizations? Yes, absolutely. But we were just, we were kind of sitting down and asking ourselves, okay, you know, we know quite a lot about adult development. We even have very robust practices that support it. What would be the most powerful delivery system to provide for more and more people regular opportunities that would be much greater supports to their growth and development? And we settled on the idea of work because we didn't know a more frequented arena that has ambition. You could say everybody lives in a family too, but how do you get your arms around 100,000 families and what, what are the goals running through those families? I mean, it would be different for every family, but when you have an organization with 100 people or 10,000 people or 100,000 people, or I just spent the morning with an organization I'd never heard of, and I'm guessing most of you haven't ever heard of either, that has 10 million employees, and it is basically the Chinese version of Uber, it's called Didi, D-I-D-I. You can Google your way to it. And they're interested in, you know, how can we be a growth culture in a gig economy with 10 million employees, you know? And, you know, uh, so it's just the work is just such an unbelievably fertile context. But, you know, there's nothing to say that, uh, you know, a family therapist might not want to bring it into her work, you know, to help a family be more of a growth culture. We just think that work is the is the biggest, I'm getting older, right? So, you know, I only have so much more time to have an impact. So you naturally kind of go where you think you have the biggest uh, chance to have impact. Okay, yeah, there's a loss. Sure, there's a loss involved with every, every development, but that loss is primarily the internal experience that if I'm in the socialized mind and I have to now risk, you know, uh, kind of being myself the creator of my own inner uh, source of direction and so on. Well, that's a huge risk. You know, one of the benefits of the socialized mind is if you follow other people's expectations and everything gets screwed up, well, it's not really your fault. I mean, you follow the expectations. So every, every development feels like a big loss and, and, it, and it is a big risk. Is it a loss to the society? I'm not so sure about that. I mean, I can remember when I first started talking about adult developmental theory, I did a radio interview, you know, about it. And somebody called in and said, you're, you're talking about helping people become more self-authoring and, 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 and using their own minds. If everybody uses their own minds, I mean, won't we be in trouble? I mean, 
I know you're not all sitting in the United States, but we are in the midst of an absolutely unprecedented governmental situation in our country. And uh, believe me, if you know more people could think for themselves, I think we would be better off. So I'm not as concerned for society. I think society does better when more people are growing and developing. In fact, as some of you know, and you can Google um, the YouTube video I did at the, uh, the Royal Society in London, I think that the species itself is living, we are living longer because there is a species-wide recognition that we need to grow more of the highest order of consciousness in order to solve the most lethal and risky problems that we face as a species. We're the only species that is living so long after the years of reproduction and fertility. And I think that has something to do with the fact that we're living longer in order to create more instances of higher order of consciousness. So the gains far outweigh the losses. Thank you.